We are starting the show, though, talking more about the stabbing that took place at a downtown Vancouver Starbucks. As you've been hearing in the news, there has been a murder charge laid, but witnesses are still reeling after seeing that man stabbed outside of the Starbucks on Sunday. He uh, passed away a short time later. We know the victim, 37-year-old Paul Schmidt, was standing outside of that cafe at the corner of Granville and West Pender. Police say there was a brief altercation. He was then stabbed several times and rushed to hospital where he passed away. Well, what does this mean as far as public safety and what other types of incidents are we seeing on the streets of Vancouver? Joining us to talk a little bit more about this and what business owners are doing to keep their staff and customers safe is John Neat, the CEO of JJ Bean. John, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Uh, it's just uh, such an absolutely horrible thing that we've seen happen and uh, as we get more details about what happened. But uh, as the CEO of a cafe, what went through your mind when you heard about this happening? Well, it's devastating. I mean, I, as I understand it. He was with his daughter and his wife. Um, I can't imagine how many times they're going to relive this scenario. Um it's just an awful thing, but there's there's so many people with. I only guess that the individual had mental illness. Um, we're dealing with a lot of those type people at our cafes. Fortunately, um, we haven't had any violence uh, like that. We've had violence between customers. Uh, commercial drive store. Uh, one individual stabbed two different individuals at two different times. Neither of them was life threatening, but that's the worst kind of. Um, physical altercation we've had. And and how do uh, staff members and customers, when something like that happens, uh, even in front of people, uh, how do, how do your staff members and customers, how do they react to that? Well, obviously people are shocked. Uh, They they don't know what to do. Um, You know, my staff and my customers are basically, you know, one is there to serve coffee. The other is there to buy coffee and they're there just to have a peaceful time. So when you have so much mental illness in this city and it not being dealt with in a way that's suitable, uh, I don't, I mean, it's, I was just down in LA last week. It's, it's far worse there. It's awful. Um, you know, you have places like Starbucks with security guards. Um, you don't want to, you don't want to go to that point where you have to have a security guard and, and, then you get accused of stereotyping people that you won't let in your stores and lawsuits and all sorts of problems. But there's no place to send them. The, the cops are kind of their their hands are tied behind their back. They, they have no they arrest these people and they're back on the street like shoplifting is probably our worst issue. People just come in and blatantly steal things off our shelves and they know that there's nothing that can be done about it. We have to put all of our, you know, merchandise on the back counters so that people just don't walk in and steal things. It's shoplifting is really not an offense that the police even take seriously. And do people know the shoplifters? Do they know also that because of what we've seen as far as altercations that have turned violent and, and so sadly in some cases that have turned deadly, do they know that that staff members aren't going to step in, they're not going to try and stop them because there is that fear? 
Yeah, I mean, there's still some staff members that do. Um, I mean, I ran a guy down once and uh, probably shouldn't have. You know, he could have had a knife. But people just see it as a violation. Like, you know, when you when you steal from, like, my staff and I, we very care very much about each other and about the company. And so when someone does something like that, you have a natural tendency to not let it happen. Obviously, we don't want our staff to be at risk, but people will still do it. They'll still, you know, try to stop somebody. And it's it's very it's a very sad situation. But the the cops are. I mean, I think one of the worst things about the whole de- defund the police, the police, and you know, we always always had a confidence in the police, and the police reciprocated. But I think. You know, we've lost something at our Woodward store. We're, we're having glass broken once a month. The whole downtown east side has gone from a two to three block um, area to six or eight blocks. And then all sorts of 10 cities that go get taken down, like the one on Strathcona is still taken down. But the one last summer in Crab Park that was taken down is back up there again. And there's another 30, 40 tents up there. Um, there doesn't seem to be any um, any control. Uh, any this, this, the police have lost control of, of the streets. As before, they had control of the streets, and there was some fear um, for the perpetrators. And now there's no fear at all. They they know that nothing will happen. They won't. You know, they they won't go to jail. They'll be back on the street the next day. Um, very sad. And I, I'm not sure if making drugs looser is helping things. And I don't know the exact connection between drugs and crime, but they both seem to go up together. Drug use and crime seem to be linked. I, I don't know that. I'm not a criminologist, but it definitely seems to be as we lose the streets to, to all of this um, drug use. You go down on Columbia Street, Columbia and Hastings, and people are shooting up right in front of you, like not even, don't even care. And it's happening everywhere, in every alley, every door, storefront. And correspondingly, crime is worse than it's ever been. And I, police would say differently, because people like me don't even report it anymore. Right. I get I don't I don't report it because nothing happens or, you know, situation. We had anti-maskers come to our store last year um, and the government had had to have a mask indoors and we refused to serve them because they refused to wear a mask. Um, uh, Again, at our commercial drive store, there were six of them came in, refused to move out of our store. They uh, we called the cops. Cops took them away, uh, in my opinion, a little viciously. They put them in handcuffs and all of that. But we just basically wanted them out of our store. But now that those anti-maskers are going to court, they're subpoenaing, subpoenaed myself, my son, three of our staff. We've gone, my three staff have gone to court once. They've lost three days of work. Hmm. I have to appear in court um, next month, and so does my son, which is a total waste of our time. Um, All we did was obey the law by 
telling people you have to wear a mask. And if you don't wear a mask, we won't serve you. But these people are just, I don't know, as a way of getting back at us or something, but wasting so much time and energy. It's, it's, it's crazy, all the things. Just You just want to serve really good coffee and really fresh baked goods. And you deal with this kind of crap all the time, it's nonstop, broken windows. A broken window costs anywhere from 800 to $1,200. A broken door is $1,200, $1,400. And it's happening at my stores every month. And there's nothing I can do about it. There's no compensation I can get. It's just like, okay, another door broke. It's... Uh, very disheartening. That's a, I mean, that's a huge cost, if nothing else. So when yeah. you just the cost alone, never mind the inconvenience and what you're dealing with as far as staff safety. Yeah, yeah. At our commercial drive store, we're going to be installing a big security gate. We had an incident uh, a few months ago where our baker was there. Baker comes in at four thirty, and this customer kept banging on the door, insisting that he get service. And he was mentally ill. He ended up breaking the glass on the door and, you know, scaring my baker to bits because he insisted on being served, even though we weren't open. <laughs> so now we're going to be installing a security gate so that our staff will feel safe. John, I just want to play you one one small clip. This was actually recorded. Uh, one of our producers here, Bianca Rego, recorded this just this morning at the Starbucks downtown by our location. This is just a very small portion of it because I can't actually play uh, what this person said on on the air. But this this was part of what a customer was doing inside the cafe. You can clean that up also. It's hot. Anyone even give me milk? I know. So that was part of uh, he kind of lost it. He he poured his drink on on the ground. He also said a, a number of very very hurtful and racist things. But I'm curious mm-hmm. if your staff have also dealt with outbursts like that. I've just been dealing with an email this morning. Seven emails from the same individual who was just ranting and raving about my staff or all these awful things. And he's a customer we've banned before. Um, but no, it's it's a common thing. You know, it's, I, I don't want to be in areas anymore where there's a large amount of mental illness because there's nothing I can do about it. And Starbucks is doing the same thing. They're closing stores in these areas where there's problem customers because there's nothing they can do about it. And you're going to see more and more of us closing stores in downtown areas where there's where the streets have been lost to the to the homeless and mentally ill and drug addicts. All right. Well, John, thank you uh, for coming on the show and for talking about this today. Uh, we will keep uh, having this discussion, I know, but thanks so much. We'll leave it there for today. Okay. Thank you.
Just a reminder, the federal budget set to be unveiled about a half hour from now. We will have all of the details for you as they are available. But right now, we are talking about some changes proposed for the Family Law Act in B.C. And the amendments could potentially clarify the law around pets, property and pensions. They were put forward by B.C.'s Attorney General saying that these would better meet the modern day needs of separating couples. Nikki Sharma was asked specifically about how this might make things different if a couple is separating and trying to figure out custody issues with a pet. Well, they are uh, under our law. Actually, pets are property. But what we've done in these amendments is take a look at how to care for the family pet during a divorce. And we know that uh, pets across um, the province are really loved members of the family. And so the, the amendments make it easier for people to come up with their own agreements when it comes to how to divide the family pet time with the family pet, or if they can't, to get an order from a judge to say who's, um, who gets custody of the family pet. And Nikki Sharma talking about the amendments have passed will provide more guidance for the parties as well as the judges when determining how to address ownership and possession of pets. So what will this actually do? Well, Victoria Schroff joins us now, animal law lawyer at Schroff and Associates, also part of the faculty at Capilano University. Victoria, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. What are your thoughts on these proposed changes? Well, I'm really excited about them. I think that these proposed amendments to the Family Law Act will really help clarify the law around how we can sort of say which person in the separating couple is going to have uh, custody of the pet. And I think that this is going to clear up some of the gray area that's been um, around for a while in the law. And so it's, uh, it's, it's a move in the right direction. The question was put to the Attorney General on how would a judge know or what will a judge be looking at then to make this decision? And she talked about the income space for the pet, how pets are valued as far as parts of the family. Are there any concerns that it could be decided upon, though, on, say, a factor of income where maybe the person is more financially sound, but they're not actually the primary caregiver to the pet? I don't believe so. I hope that that would not be an unintended consequences because of, of what could happen here if the proposed changes are uh, passed into law. Because the act also requires um, the person's ability to um, demonstrate their relationship with the animal and their willingness to care for the animal specifically. So that is not just um, that's not just financial. That that broadens the scope right there. And there's also another factor um, that it, the court would consider the relationship a child has with the animal. Um, there are also factors relating to family violence, threats of cruelty to animals, and and, and other things. So so I think that it's tried to be broader in in its approach um, to understanding how um, there's a relational aspect between humans and animals and. And, and seeing that, like the way I describe this in, um, they quoted me in, in the press release, is that I say that these amendments reflect how pets are valued as unique family members. And instead of just seeing an animal as, as a piece of furniture. And so that's why I'm really excited. Are there often cases where this does become contentious, where people cannot come up with uh, an agreed upon way of dealing with a separation that involves pets? Yes, I think it does happen quite often where people get very acrimonious about it. The pet is then weaponized 
as part of the acrimony between the people. But I really don't like the idea that the pet has to suffer because the humans don't get along. So it does it does work out that way. But my in my 23 years as an animal law lawyer, I try to keep my cases out of court as much as I can so that people can get to their own agreements and solutions. And there's a lot more certainty with that. There's less stress and it's less expensive. Um, so it's just it's just better all around um, for people to try and work it out on their own. And I think there's space in this um, new amendment paradigm for that as well. Uh, I think Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General, she also spoke about the fact this was the first province, that BC is the first province to do this. So was that, do you think, because there were these cases or the call for BC to do it? Or, or what do you think has kind of led to BC being at the head of that? Well, I think we actually have a very progressive government right now. And I think that the, the government is looking at a lot of different legislation to try and make things better for animals, which I've been appreciating. Um I think one of the precipitating factors is probably the COVID impact where people adopted pets and then um, the human relationship didn't um, outlast COVID, but they did want to keep their pet. And so um, there was more um, kind of, I think, an impetus based on that. But it's also been something that's been brewing for a while. But it's true that Canada will have, as BC being its first, I think, I think take a more broad look at things. I think the rest of the provinces will will be looking to BC now um, because there's nothing else like this in um, other provinces. So we're we're in the in the vanguard. Hmm. And as far as you read this legislation or these proposed amendments, then I know we we tend to talk about dogs and cats primarily. But will this be for everything from budgies, goldfish, dogs, cats, anything that is considered a pet? Um, I don't believe livestock would be included, so to speak, um, you know, like cows and sheep and more animals that you would find on farms. But I think any companion animal um, is is like the target for this. So it would primarily, you know, honestly, I can say most of these cases that I've ever had have been around cats and dogs. Um, the odd time it, there's been, a, you know, a gerbil or a bunny, but usually it's going to be about um, about cats and dogs. So so that's generally the way we see it. Uh, is there anything missing, do you think, from this? I, I know that, that in the past we've talked about animals and, and the idea of are they property, are they parts of the family? Is there, d- Does this go far enough, do you think, or is anything missing? Well, you know, I think, I think it's a very good step. And the, these are basically, the, this, the whole act is being revised in phases. And I think, I think what this is showing us is that we are looking, as the government is sort of saying, we're looking at animals as family members. And, and that is something that I haven't seen before. So it's, it's definitely um, something that I think is extremely promising. And it's also going to depend now how it shakes down with the courts interpreting these provisions if it becomes law. Um, because currently um, it's contentious um, as to who will get the pet following a divorce. Um, and um, it depends on you know, a lot of different factors that people want to bring up. But often it centers around who has the bill of sale, who was the person who was gifted the animal, and the relational aspects, the bond between the human and the pet are not really accounted for. So I think this is going to help bring that and to basically modernize and have, have basically the law catch up to where society has already been with these, with these feelings about animals.
And Victoria, I'm curious too, though, and you just made me think of something. If somebody, though, brings the pet into the relationship as opposed to, say, a couple getting together and then down the road, say, they, they get a pet together, is there is there more consideration given to the person who was the pet guardian, was the owner of that pet first? I would assume so, yes. I, w- I would assume so, but it would depend, too, on uh, what that couple had worked out. Um, so, for example, I'll tell you where this could come up. This could come up in the case of an emotional support animal. And one person has come into the uh, family with that emotional support animal being theirs. And that would be pretty, um, you know, I, I, there's no question that animal would be uh, staying, I would imagine, with the person who had the disability requiring the animal. Um, but as I say, sometimes these cases get weaponized and, um, you know, there can be people who will make things up and, and not have actually um, the full interest of the animal at heart, but their own interests at heart instead. Um, so I'd like to think that these um, amendments will be able to put the, the interest of the animal forward in a way that we have not seen before. And that's a win for animal law. All right. Uh, Victoria Schroff, we will leave it there for today. Appreciate you, though, joining uh, the show today for, uh, to, talk to, more, to talk more about this with us. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Anytime, Joe. Thanks for being with us on this budget day. Well, one of the issues we were expecting to have addressed, and it was in the budget, has to do with the so-called criminal interest rate and the government taking a look at the rates that are charged by some places that give those really fast loans and has actually set a new rate. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about that and about what that is going to look like moving forward. Joining us to do that is Jennifer McCracken, Senior VP and Insolvency Trustee at BDO Vancouver. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking some time. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Can you talk a little bit, and and they did go into this as far as this rate that payday loans are allowed to apply to their loans and, and how that works. Can you kind of explain a bit how that whole system works? And then we'll get to the, the changes that were announced in the federal budget. Yeah, no problem. So we know um, in British Columbia in May of 2022, the BC government actually implemented rules and regulations uh, that apply to payday lenders in our province. So federally, there is an exemption for these lenders and how they structure their loans and the interest that they can charge. So in British Columbia, currently, uh, you can't borrow more than $1,500, and it must be repaid within 62 days. So again, in BC, these are meant to be sort of, their people use them in emergencies, are meant to have a, a short-term um, lower cost associated with them. Lenders can't charge more than $15 for every $100 that are borrowed. And um, that would include charges and fees. And uh, they, the payday loan itself can't be more than 50% of a paycheck. So there is really meant to be some parameters around how the lenders structure these agreements. It's got to be clear to the consumer what they're signing. Um, the the issue that a lot of people come into with these is that once they borrow the money and the time frame that they have to pay it back is really not attainable. The entire loan amount and the fees have to be repaid and they really get themselves into a debt cycle because it really throws their budget out of whack to have this sort of short-term, high-cost loan that they're dealing with. 
What happens in a scenario like that then, even if the maximum is $1,500, but like you said, it has to be paid back within 62 days? What happens if somebody simply can't do that? Well, you know what happens? So when they, when people borrow the money, what they're typically doing with the payday lenders, they're filling out a form, allowing the lender to withdraw the total loan amount, including fees directly from their bank account via a preauthorized debit. So that uh, transaction is going to go ahead on their bank account. If it bounces and the money's not there, they're going to have an NSF payment with the lender and the interest charges are going to be accruing on that loan. So this is where a lot of people have criticized the loophole because in BC it's 32% is the interest rate. But when you actually annualize that, if this loan continues to be outstanding month after month, it can be upwards of like over 300% annually. So what happens is they can't pay, they, they have to make arrangements to pay back this loan that has this extraordinarily high interest rate. And they, they just get into this debt cycle where they have to borrow from another account to pay that off. Typically, these loans are for fixed payments like rent, expected costs, utilities bills. So somebody who's borrowing doesn't generally have that money set aside to pay it back. So therein lies the issue with the debt cycle. Right. So with the finance minister today in the budget, making that that percentage lower that and I had it written down, was it is it called the criminal rate or, or anything above a certain percentage is considered criminal by bringing that down? Do you think that will have an impact? You know, currently in BC, as I say, we're at 15%. Uh, The recommendation was limiting it, sorry, 15%, sorry, $15 for $100. Uh, The recommendation was $14 for $100. It was $1 less than what we currently see. So my answer to you is no, I don't foresee that this will, will fix the problem that I see in my practice. People that are using these loans... Um, are on the edge. If somebody out there is listening and they're thinking of getting one of these loans, what they need to do is call me and meet with me because they are in financial difficulty. So lowering it by a dollar for what we see in BC is not going to have an impact, I, I don't think personally, to what we're seeing out in practice. And you've kind of answered this question, but uh, like you said, if somebody is is taking this step and this is what they're doing as far as trying to get out of debt or trying to deal with the, a shortage of money, it does seem to lead to a pretty a bad cycle of, of trying to get out of the debt. D- do these loans ever work or what do you see in your practice? Generally, it's very common. I can tell you that, you know, they've been around since 19, in the 90s. Um, they're way more common now than they ever were. The FCAC, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, found that they're more common in BC since the pandemic. So we can say about 11% or so of people polled on their recent study use them. That's a high amount. Um, so where they can be effective is if you really think you can pay that back within 14 days. By the next payday, that amount will be paid. But you really have to take stock of what are the other debt payments that I have in my budget that are coming due? What is my rent payment? You know, generally speaking, most people I see that have these accounts um, on their creditor list have reported that the loan wasn't, didn't fix the situation, in fact, or caused more problems. So it sounds like as well, though, and I know it was mentioned that Quebec also has its own rules in place when it comes to these payday type loans. It sounds like BC and Quebec or provinces had already been dealing with this and addressing it, even though it has been addressed in the federal budget, isn't going to make a huge difference. It isn't because actually the interest rate that was recommended for the amendment to the criminal code was 35%. In BC, we're at 32%. We're already lower than the amount that the feds have recommended in this budget. So um, hence why 
and from my view, I'm not seeing a material change to what is already happening. A lot of this is mandated by the provinces. So on the budget today, they talked about collaborating with the provinces since they've issued this. There has to be collaboration provincially. Um, a lot of these are governed by consumer protection legislation. So um, we, I will not personally be surprised if I hear groups uh, sort of mandating that they don't think that this is enough in the sense that um, a lot of people that are borrowing these amounts are at risk, and it's for basic living expenses. So there's a bigger issue, I think, that needs examining as to who's using these, why, and you know what can we do to support people that are in financial difficulty. Uh, and you mentioned, too, that you've seen more use of these loans as uh, since the pandemic started and as uh, we've seen inflation going up. Uh, do you think there will be an impact, or will it make a difference? Not only this, well, this, this won't have a huge impact, as you said, but we did see, as expected that GST rebate it's being sold as the grocery rebate although people who qualify it for it will qualify for that will be able to spend it on whatever they want but we are seeing people like you said who can't afford gasoline who can't afford groceries do you think it will make any difference the the rebate that was announced earlier today you know, rebates actually, in my practice, a lot of people really rely on those rebates. So I think it's a good move. And, and I, I should say anything that the government is doing to try to make change and improve the lives of Canadians is a good thing. Um, I do. I personally think that the rebates will be welcomed. Um, every little bit counts. A lot of people, I think, honestly, Jill, a lot of people need to sort of examine their financial life as a whole and, and really take a look at like where are we at how much debt am i carrying what is this normal to live like this i you know what are the options for me to live debt free so some of it is the financial literacy the education around what are my options when i'm struggling with debt if a canadian that is struggling with debt thinks wants a gst rebate to fix their financial life you know they really do need to come in and talk to a trustee because there's so much more to talk about and educate on what the options are and get people back to a stable financial footing where um, the rebate will do what it's intended, right, to be that little bit extra to help a family that uh, is in need. And we are talking about this on federal budget day. Are you seeing it becoming more difficult for people to budget, to, to make those dollars stretch, to make those dollars go anywhere near where they used to? Absolutely. Uh, we are see- and we're seeing record numbers of insolvency filings in the sense that the insolvency rate during the pandemic, during COVID, did not go up. Conversely, it went down. So there was a lot of people sort of prognosticating, why is this happening? We would have anticipated, you know, this is a cataclysmic event in our lives. Wouldn't we see an increase? We're seeing it now. Uh, we're seeing that it's the, the combination of anybody who's carrying debt that has that that's tied to the Bank of Canada interest rate, which has been going up. And it's also the cost of living. So we are at a very high inflation rate. Um, that, you know, again, looking back so in the past 20 years, we weren't seeing this combination of high inflation rate and an increasing bank rate. So that is what's putting people over the edge. And uh, we're, we're really starting to see the pinch when you examine the insolvency filings that were uh, published by the superintendent of bankruptcy. And do you see that changing anytime soon? Or, or what do you think needs to be done to see those numbers come back down? You know, I, a lot of it's going to depend on, um, you know, people want to analyze what type of debt that they have. So do they have mortgage debt? Is there non-mortgage debt? Um, analyzing um, income, job stability, um, all these things are intertwined. So there, there's so much at stake in terms of, um, you know, how, how are Canadians doing financially? How are they feeling? I can tell you that um, for the past, say, 10 years or so, most people surveyed said they feel that they're living paycheck to paycheck. So I would say I don't personally feel that that uh, sort of sentiment of 
struggling to make ends meet, not having a savings plan, um, anybody who's living on fixed income. So you think of pensioners, people who live on disability checks, um, that until we see sort of the inflation rate going down, until we see sort of prices cooling, um, they're going to continue to struggle uh, given all that's going on. All right, Jennifer McCracken, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me.